Welcome to podcast number 20 for Thanks for Your Service. Thanks for Your Service is a news and information resource and its focus is on historical topics relating to the Australian military. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, just search for Thanks for Your Service. Our website is www.thanksforyourservice.net and you can also email us at info at thanksforyourservice.net. In today's podcast, we learn more about the Fromell Association of Australia. Joining us on the line from Sydney in New South Wales is Geoffrey Benn, who is the Secretary of the Fromell's Association of Australia, and Margot Leary, who's joining us from the Hunter Valley uh, this afternoon, um, a Vice President with the Association. And what is the official title for the research part, Marg? I'm an Assistant Coordinator of Research, so... We have lots of researchers, so they need coordinating. Wonderful. Look, thank, thank you both for joining us today. And we've got a series of questions that, uh, that either you or, or uh, Jeff can, can choose which is the best person to answer. But we'll get kicked off maybe, uh, Jeff, with you. Can you explain what is the Fromell's Association of Australia, please? Uh, certainly, David. The association is actually an incorporated association, so it meets the requirements of state legislation for that. But it grew out of a meeting that took place in Kersley, which is outside Cessnock, for those who don't know the area. Kersley was the home place of a private Matthew Heppel, spelled H-E-P-P-L-E, who was killed at Fromell. And he was a, an uncle of Royce Atkinson, who actually called a meeting of people together back there in 2012 because soldiers had been uncovered and families were starting to put their names forward with the army and to try to make connections with them. Um, we also, in that year, we had a talk from Lambus and Lazus, who was the person who'd be behind the move to exhume the, the pit that was believed to be a burial site and ultimately proved to be. So it was well attended. They had a lot of people there. It was spread over two days of talks instead of just one. The second day was just for the relatives of the Heppel family, as it turned out. And that interest connect, connected a number of people together with um, from L and in, interest in from L and trying to find out uh, where their relatives are or maybe are, and it turned into an annual event which was um, not quite duplicated the following year. But uh, the following year there was a, a mood passed around the audience and saying, well, we should do something collectively because we're here and we've got this focus now. So we decided to start the process of uh, working towards incorporation. And by the time the next uh, event came up in 2014, I'd actually been able to get the association incorporated to have a constitution, and we adopted that at the meeting in Cessnock that year. So we're a loose group of people. We seek to identify soldiers who were discovered in that mass grave at the, at the site of what is now known as Pheasant Wood, um, those soldiers who were buried there after the Battle of Fromell was actually over. We attempt to identify people in the modern times who may be share a family connection with one of those soldiers and we use DNA in particular to assist in giving a soldier an identity. So we began as an informal group and now we've got a, an official status, we're an incorporated entity, we have members, we have an, an annual meeting and we have objectives. And our three ob objects um, of our association are firstly to champion the sacrifice of the soldiers who served at Fromell and their families to promote, encourage and document research designed to identify the missing soldiers of the Battle of Fromell and to forge strong relationships with organisations and people 
interested in the Battle of Fromel, especially the families of soldiers, the Australian Army and the citizens of Fromel. So the association, it was formed back in March 2015, so five years on. 2014. 2014, sorry, so five years on. Actually officially incorporated on the 10th of March 2014, but it grew out of two previous years' worth of meetings in 2012 and 2013. Okay, so the association's been going just over five years. Who makes up the association and who can actually join? Well, we have a a, a committee as such. We have president... uh, two vice presidents, both who are in, in charge of research matters. Um, we have a secretary, a treasurer. But um, we have a number of relatives of soldiers who fought at Fromel who, who are so far, um, some of those soldiers are unidentified and some have been, uh, family members of those. We have people who are just interested in Australian World War One involvement um, and particularly the Battle of Fromel in some cases. We've got students at university. We have um, various schools which have taken up research projects and they involve the Battle of Fromel, so it's a wide range of people. They don't have to have an official connection with Fromel. It's um, obviously it's an interest that they must uh, have in common with us. So they come forward, seek seek to be part of it, and get involved. Yeah. Like their stories, find out what's going on. Can you give our listeners some background on the Battle of Fromel? Oh, that's a long one. <laughs> Fromel, it's officially recorded as the first major battle that took place in World War One on the Western Front for Australian soldiers. And it started and ended in disaster. It was a result of poor planning, but it, uh, officially there are more fatalities recorded at, in less than 24 hours at Fromel than there were in the Boer War, the Korean War and the Vietnam War combined. Um, the battle took place on the 19th and 20th of July 1916, outside a village called Fromel, which is, of course, where we get the name from now. It was, at that time, often called the Battle of Fleur Bay because the soldiers left that town to make their way to the battlefront. And it was the first battle by a division of the Australian Imperial Forces on the Western Front. That uh, division was called the 5th Division. They went into battle alongside British 61st Division, which was formed from the 2nd South Midland British Division. Orders were given to seize and capture and hold the first-line system of the enemy trenches. And those enemy trenches were between 250 and 400 yards away from the Australians in their trench, Australians and British in their trenches. Um, there were no instructions on what would happen in the event the first-line trenches were indeed seized, and in some cases the soldiers got beyond the first line, got beyond the second line, and even into the long, and looking for a third line in many cases before uh, a, a retreat was, or, or a decision was made to come back to where they started from. The objective was to prevent the enemy from moving troops southward to take part in what then was the main battle taking place at the Somme, some 80 kilometres away. The objectives expressly excluded an attack on what's called Oberz Ridge, which is a, a high line of land which is beyond the trenches. And there were there were trenches captured by the Australian 8th and 14th Brigades, which were part of the 5th Division. Um, the 61st British Division were on the right side facing the Germans, and they were basically decimated by the firepower from coming from the what's called the Sugarloaf salient a, a gun a fortified gun position um, they were basically decimated and within two hours of the attack starting uh, 
the British sensibly decided it was time to withdraw, but the order for commu- uh, which would have told the Australians to do the same didn't get through until after the Australians had basically sent another reinforcement um, contingent forward. Uh, so the official tally of those who died, were wounded or made prisoners of war in a single night came to 7,080. The official numbers would actually be increased if you included those who died from wounds in the course of or later on because of the um, battle itself. So it was um, a situation where a lot of soldiers died for no nothing gained and um, shared the ignominious glory of that with the British. After the battle was well and truly over, the official command communique called it a series of important raids south of Armentieres. So it wasn't called from El, it wasn't called Fleur Bay, and it was classified by the British high command as important raids, which really incensed the soldiers who were involved at the time. Uh, they thought that they were involved in a battle and um, didn't appreciate the, the lack of consideration for all their efforts. Now, you also, in terms of the devastation by, of the Allied forces, etc., obviously the Germans uh, suffered greatly as well. I, I read in the notes that you spoke about that Fromel is actually not inscribed um, on any battle honours for the Australians. Is that correct? In Australia itself, uh, the word Fromel doesn't appear by itself in any inscriptions on war memorials. It does appear in places you would not expect to see it, such as the French Embassy in Canberra on a column, which has it firmly placed at the top of one side. Um, They have their services in honour of the various battles that were fought by Australians throughout the year. It was also part of the uh, war memorial at Hyde Park Corner in London, a, a recent sculpture series that was um, built to record all the names of places from which Australians came from and which, when you look at the wall, actually make up the names of different battle sites. And it's also recorded, the word from L is actually recorded elsewhere by the 5th Division itself in their own memorial at um Polygon Wood, which is near Ypres in Belgium. Mm. There's one other place that um, in Belgium that's on a beak uh, where th- there's a British um, extension memorial which has the word from L in it, but it's, it's essentially to honour those who served, the British who served in 1916 as opposed to Australians. It also honours the British who served there in 1915 before we even got into the country. In, in terms of the 5th Australian Division, what were some of the Australian units, the battalions who made up the division, and, and where were they from, which part of Australia in general? The division is made up of two, sorry, three brigades, um, and each of the three brigades is made up of four battalions. So you've got 12 battalions in the 5th Division, and in the British um, corresponding 61st Division, you also have another 12 battalions. The 8th Brigade for the Australian 5th Division had the 32nd Battalion, the 31st Battalion, which were from Western Australia, Queensland and Victoria, uh, as the assaulting battalions there. 
They also had reserve battalions, 29th and 30th, essentially from New South Wales. The 14th Brigade was made up of the 53rd and the 54th Battalion, the 56th and 55th as reserve battalions, and those of the 14th Brigade essentially all came from New South Wales. The 15th Brigade, which essentially all from Victoria, uh, they were made up of the 59th and 60th Battalions as the assaulting battalions, and the reserve battalions were the 57th and the 58th. The 15th Brigade fared very badly because they were right beside the British in terms of the assault, and of course they were subject to crossfire as well from the Sugarloaf salient, which decimated the British. They had a commanding view of the battlefield through about 180 degrees and they just mowed soldiers down as they saw them. Who was the Australian Divisional Commander at the time of the battle? That was General uh, McKay, M-C-C-A-Y. He was a Victorian of note. Um, he was a very firmly following orders imposed on him by the British, but he also, in many people's estimation, didn't um, exercise enough discretion of his own and um, support the soldiers that he was sending in to do the work. He um, was never seen by those who served in any of the years afterwards as someone that they could look up to. I mean, you've said that the, the Allies and the Australians over a 24, 48-hour period suffered huge casualties. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is a question for Mark, but what's the current status on the identification of the Australian missing and also of the recovered soldiers from the battle? Um, yes, there were 1,335 reported missing, at least that's what's on the Australian War Memorial at present as part of their Battle of Fromel uh, page. So with 1,335 missing, there were 250 in the mass grave. So that means, theoretically, we have to research 1,335 to find the 250. Um, But at the same time, the Germans uh, nominated 191 men whose IDs and possessions they ultimately returned to the British. So... That gave us a bit of a start in in knowing that 191 were were named by the Germans. It's called the German Death List. And uh, that gave us a priority to get started on the research. So we did research them first. It doesn't mean they were easy to find or anything like that. Um, But uh, Royce Atkinson at the time researched all those missing soldiers and he came up with a priority list that said, yes, There were 191 on the German death list, but there are also quite a few hundred who were also on their Red Cross files said that they reached the German lines. So uh, having reached the German lines, some of them actually took a German trench and and retreated back and others were were on the first, what Jeff was saying, second or third German line was where they were last seen. So the Red Cross files, uh, again on the War Memorial side, are, are a wonderful resource. Uh, resource for us. Uh, so that's it. Um, so far, 166 are now identified, mostly uh, well through their DNA. Um, and uh, for us, the DNA is how we work very closely with the Australian Army. 
and the uh, UWCA, which is the Unrecovered War Casualties Army, their, their unit. So if we get a request from anywhere to, you know, my great uncle is missing, he's on the, uh, from Mel, can you find him? Uh, or then we we go to the army and they say to us, yes, we, we need both the DNA from his mother's side and from his father's side to help identify this. So, so we work very closely with them and then we go off in search of a family tree of that soldier and uh, do a DNA chart at the same time because the two things are quite different. But uh, the uh, exciting thing is that as well as the soldiers being missing, the family are missing. (laughs) So it's not not as easy as you think it is. And uh, we start with the soldiers' military file, which is on the National Archives of Australia website. And that gives us the personal info on the, that soldier's military file is his name and his age when he joined up, where he was born, his next of kin and where he actually signed up. And uh, if you think about it, a lot of them didn't give their right names. They might have been known as Mick all their life when their name was really, you know, George Henry. <laughs> so they signed up as Mick. Um, they Some of them... Uh, didn't include next of kin because they were, say, working out at Broken Hill and they put their next of kin as their employer. Uh, so and the uh, that limits our, our ability. And, of course, a lot of them changed their age. We have people who were up to 50 or more who brought their age down and other young men who put their age up. There were 14, 15-year-olds, I think, um, uh, who'd put their age up or use their older brother's name and age and, and uh, joined up like that. Um, so a lot of the information wasn't very accurate. So our researchers then have to find the minimal. Can they find a parent, you know, or two parents or some siblings? Some of the uh, files do have a lot of correspondence from families, which is very sad to read because often the parents are still looking for them long after the war. They believe they've had... Um, you know, a head injury and they're wandering around France or, or something like that. So letters go on and on for uh, years with people looking for them. Um, with the DNA, we, we do uh, try and find people from the mother's side. So she has the mitochondrial DNA and the father's side is the Y chromosome DNA. But a lot of our research, if you think about it, the young men then were like our, our backpackers of today. They came from overseas looking for adventure and work and a lot of them were not born in Australia, very different to the Second World War. The First World War, a lot of them weren't born in Australia. So that's why they gave the local barman as their next of kin rather than their parents back in England because uh, uh, that just seemed so far away at the time, I suppose. Uh, so our researchers, we've got about 25 regulars and lots of others who who do one now and then, and some people are researching their own family, and some are actually researching. Uh, like myself, I'm a genealogist. I helped someone who was researching their own family and got hauled in. That was back in 2013, and have been doing that ever since. Uh, mm. uh, Mark, any other you, questions? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the mass grave. Can you give us a bit of a background on the actual identification of that mass grave? Well, Jeff mentioned Lambus angled us looking for what he knew were the missing. 
and he, he used the aerial photos from the First World War to identify a, a place that appeared to be a grave near near the battlefield, and it was near where the Germans had a little um, railway that would have carried, um, I suppose, ammunition in and all that sort of thing. But they used it um, to take the bodies to this grave site and and bury them there. And uh, and and Lambert spent quite a long time and. Uh, looking for this, and he looked at all the war memorials and eventually worked out that that approximately 1,300 men um, were were missing, and and there were quite a lot who were. When you look at all the different memorials around the place, uh, not all were on the memorials and so on. So he worked out there were still quite a few unaccounted for people who hadn't been where bodies hadn't been gathered up after the war and and buried in places like VC Corner and ration farm and so on so he he worked that out and uh, in at one stage he was um, organizing to do a, an archaeology dig and eventually the army listened and, and came to the party and and a dig was done uh, uh, just test pits and sure enough they found Australian buttons and artifacts they actually found an English button as well so that's why the English joined in originally on this uh, whole search and and then it was funded to have the uh, whole site dug up in a forensic way, you know, with the uh, uh, a proper mortuary set up and done as though it was a, a crime scene with every little bit um, brought up. And the, they did find that the remains were so well well enough preserved that they could get DNA from each one, and they were well enough preserved to. Uh, have them each have their own individual graves. So the new cemetery at Pheasant Wood has the the whole um, 250 graves with 166 of them now have their name on it. So and the family takes a part in writing the name on uh, uh, writing the message that goes on that uh, gravestone. Um, and uh, that and our job is wonderful because we. Um, we contact potential donors, and it may take years. And of course, some of them are so excited. You know, they've known all along that their person was missing, and that. And other people, we might be contacting people in America or any country overseas where the one branch of the family came to Australia and were coal miners, and the other branch went to Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania and were coal miners. So, trying yeah, to track DNA back over three. Hmm? If I can just add to that, uh, my own uncle was. Um the donor for DNA which identified my great uncle yeah. and um, his uncle and my uncle passed away only a number of years after giving the DNA sample and often said it was excuse me, one of the greatest things he's ever done Yeah, was to help identify his uncle Yeah, and, and, and it's bringing closure to the families uh, eventually and also from now uh, from time to time, you see the news reports of the soldiers as they're ident- being identified, being interred uh, at the cemetery at Pheasant Wood, and, uh, and obviously having a name put on their grave, and, and that's uh, a, uh, a way of bringing closure and, and also a tribute to the work that, that, that you've done. Now, the next um, annual general meeting for the association is being held in Singleton in New South Wales in July of this year. What's on the yeah. agenda? Oh, the agenda's still um, a bit fluid, but um, we're hoping to actually precede the AGM with a conference this year. 
Um, we're taking a bit more of a broad approach to education to the people who may not have been involved in this exercise before or are interested in it. We're trying to um, illustrate the historical background of the actual battle itself, um, followed by identification of the mass grave sites. Um, in that, and in that sense, uh, Lambers and Lazos is likely to be with us at Singleton this year. Um, we'll then go through explain the process of how the various recovered bodies were identified and also the ongoing research work that Marg's just talked about. Now, throughout the course of all that, we'll try to include information on how the information about soldiers was passed from the Germans to the British and Australians via the Red Cross, um, and it's a compilation of those records that led to what we now know as the German death list. Um, we'll look at um, the exchange of material, as I said, from the Germans to the English. We'll look at the effect the losses had on families and how they didn't know or had, had so much time to, waiting to find out what happened and, and look at what would have today been classified probably as post-traumatic stress in the process. And we hope to have some people there who can assist in telling us about the process that they went through in assisting the identification process and, um, and the process being contacted by the Army and finding out and being told that they've actually got someone identified. Um, um, and after that, we'll have the annual general meeting of the yeah. actual association so that we can do the usual administrative things that an incorporated body has to do each year. Yeah. We will be presenting a few soldiers who are identified. Just a quick example is... Peter Shannon, who was identified this year, he was born in Wexford in Ireland and um, his uh, sort of adopted relatives from Merriwar up in the Hunter Valley are going to come to the uh, uh, conference if they can get there because when he was a shearer in Merriwar and when they heard about him, they thought, oh, yes, he must belong to our family. But in fact, they never found a connection and it took maybe five, six years through eventually getting through in Ireland to... Um, find a lovely man called Paddy, <laughs> mm. who, who was the donor, and uh, uh, the uh, unrecovered war um, casualties. Guys, we realise that with Ireland that you just can't necessarily match up the records way back in the 1800s. They just don't go far enough back. Uh, so, so they actually accepted that although we couldn't say this person's great-grandfather is a cousin of the other person's great-grandfather, that they actually did accept that. And, uh, and this uh, Paddy Shannon, in, in, who lives in Dublin, he was um, uh, identified. Uh, sorry, yes, he, he uh, was able to uh, do the donor donation and the soldier was identified so there may be but he's going he's going to the ceremony on the 19th of uh, july in uh, uh from and uh, he's going to send us some photos for for our conference of the the actual his relative yes wonderful and where can people go to find out more about the association well we've we're living in a modern era i suppose david and um because of that we've got connections through Facebook. We've got our Formel Association of Australia page. There are a number of other Formel related pages on Facebook. Ours is the Formel Association of Australia. And we post comments about soldiers, details of events, and um, share information between members on that site. So it acts as a blog that you can add to and uh, contribute to. We've also got a, a web page, which is called... Um, uh, 
H double T P S colon slash slash from L's remembered dot wordpress dot com. I'll say that again, just call it from L's remembered dot wordpress dot com. Uh, we hope to use that as a repository of information about the individual soldiers and battalions in which they were involved. Uh, you can also leave email on that site. That'll filter back to us. And we also have um, our membership um, where we have people send their requests to join to us directly on our, via our email address, which is gvb456 at gmail.com. And, of course, members and others who are closely involved in the workings of the association receive a, a newsletter, which has all our contact details on it. Yeah. We, I try to send that out at about four month intervals, and the next one should coordinate with the meeting in July. So um, we have July, we have November, which then ties in with Remembrance Day, and one ahead of Anzac Day. Yeah. So conveniently, I suppose, but... Um, Four monthly intervals, they seem to work. They seem to have enough events happening and information to share at that sort of pace. And everything in between times is Facebook yep. or a phone call or an email. Well, Marg and, and Jeff, look, thank you so much for your time today and thank you for your contribution to the association, a great part of Australia's history, World uh, World, World War One history. And uh, thanks again for your, for your efforts and your time today. It's very much appreciated. You're welcome. And can I just say, we are often looking for researchers and genealogy people, so that's another thing that's of interest to us if people want to contact those addresses that Jeff gave. Oh, maybe I could put a plug in for a website manager too. <laughs> Absolutely, go for it. Go for it. We'll, and we'll make sure those email contacts and the links are up on our Facebook page and website again. That's the podcast for today. You can find the relevant links to this podcast on our Facebook page. We're keen to hear your feedback. Leave a comment on our Facebook page. And if you're listening to us via iTunes, please leave a review. Finally, if you are interested in sponsorship or support of this podcast, head to our website or email us. You can also support us via Patreon. The link is www.patreon.com. Thanks for your service. The version of the last post is courtesy of Rachel Bostock, and you can find links to her music on our website and Facebook page. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.